Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much, Lord, that we can be in your presence today. I thank you, God, for this opportunity just to draw deeper to you with this body, Lord. I pray that you would just continue to speak to us through your word, that you'd open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to comprehend all you have for us today. Lord, we ask you just to have your way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, happy Mother's Day. You're welcome. My peanut gallery in the front row here. Um, I'm excited to be here. Um, I have a bad history with Mother's Day. Mostly my kids are sick almost every Mother's Day. So we are very excited to be here and to be with you. Um, And we know that God has good things. So thank you for making this part of your Mother's Day celebration today. So today's message, as I was pondering and actually talking to Kathy via text message, (laughs) the Lord was speaking um, to both of us about, about what... Today was going to be about, and the title of my sermon today is called, Thank You for Your Influence. Thank you for your influence. You know, Mother's Day is, is, an, is a complicated day for a lot of people. It's filled with happiness and with grief, with disappointment, and so it's, it's very mixed for a lot of people. But we know that God created mothers. The scriptures tell us in many aspects that God is maternal. We focus very often on God as a father, but there are so many verses that talk about God being maternal, God being like a hen with, his, with her chicks, how God draws us to his breast like a mother. All these passages where this, this inspiration of motherhood comes from God because we are created in God's image. And all of these things are tied together. And when I think about mothers and I think about Christian mothers... The mother that stands out to most to me is Susanna Wesley. How many of you guys know who Susanna Wesley was? Anybody? Any church history nerds here? Susanna Wesley is called the mother of the Methodist movement because her two sons founded the Methodist church and the Methodist movement, and the credit is given to their mom for how she raised them and how she instilled the word of God in them. She had 19 children, and this woman every week gave each child an uninterrupted hour, just her and them. She believes so strongly in being intentional in how she interacted and how she raised them and what she gave them. She, they have records of things she did where she literally created spreadsheets when there were no spreadsheets to organize her household, to organize her family, to make sure that when her children turned five and not before they turned five, they would be diligent in their studies and the boys and girls would learn. They would learn Latin. They would learn the Greek. They would learn to read and write, and they would learn the word of God. Her husband was an itinerant minister, and when he was gone, she would have people to her home, and she would read sermons in the scriptures because she felt people needed to still have that connection with each other, and they would pray, and they would read, and they would sing. And this is before women were preaching in America. She did all of these things, and she organized having lay ministers minister in the church when her husband was gone. All of these things that became foundational in what we now see as the Methodist church. And she used her influence to shape the nations because there's Methodist missionaries and Methodist ministers all over the world. And they give credit back to Susanna Wesley for this. And so today we are going to take a look at how we measure the impact our lives can have. Is it in the visible moments? Like today I'm up here influencing you whether you like it or not. I have you captive for the next... I don't know. How long do I get? Two hours? Two hours? Okay, good. (laughs) There's no Packer game today. There's no Brewers. I can keep you all day, right? Um, Is it in the 
is it in the visible moments? It is in the daily choices we make that go unseen. The things that are not recorded, the things we don't post on Facebook. Although some of you have those devices in your home. You know what I'm talking about? The Echoes and what's the other ones? The Google, whatever, that are recording everything you say. So maybe it's not so unseen. Um, the things that are unseen. That each of us in our lifetime have opportunity to influence others and to influence ourselves. Um, today's scriptures, if you'll turn with me, we're going to take a look at the book of Esther. This is a book that I, I almost never preach on. And it's a famous story. And we're going to take a look at the book of Esther. And Esther, it's an interesting book because this book almost didn't make it into the Bible. Did you know that? Anybody? It almost didn't make it into the Bible because God is not mentioned once in the entire book of Esther. So they almost didn't make it into the can, and they were like, they don't talk about God. Why should we include this? This is just a historical book. But they felt that the message was so true, and it was so involved in the history of what God was doing that they left it in there. And most of us who have heard the story of Esther hear it like it's some sort of biblical fairy tale. The story of this woman who becomes queen. Like it's some sort of Disney princess synopsis in the scriptures. And I, I'm going to tell you today that this is so far removed from a fairy tale. Her story is nothing like a fairy tale. But God, as we'll see, used this woman to have a great influence. Now, at the beginning of the book of Esther, and I'm going to summarize a lot of this. I would love to just read it and go into it with you, but again, I can't really keep you for two hours. So, We have King Xerxes, and he's having this huge party. And we're in the, we're in the kingdom of Persia, which is modern-day Iran, only it was a lot bigger. And the men would have one party, and the women would have another party. These parties had gone on for the days, and the men had been drinking a lot. And at the height of the revelry, when they'd been drinking the most, the king and his, and his buddies were like, hey, go get your queen and bring her in by us. Have her put on her crown and come in and parade so all the men can see how beautiful she is. Now, these men had been drinking. They were acting inappropriate. It was, it was, not, it was not okay. And so the message went to the queen, and she was asked to come and parade herself before the king and these men, and she said no. Her dignity mattered. She said no. And as a result, the men were like, well, this can't be. She disobeyed you. So we got to do something. Otherwise, every single woman in this kingdom is going to think it's okay to say no to their husband. It's okay to say no to your husband, just so you were clear on that. All right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so the king had Vashti kicked out. They kicked her out. He had her divorced and kicked out for this. And so we have a kingdom with a vacuum, that there's a king with no queen. And this lays the scene for us to meet this young woman named Esther. We're going to take a look at Esther chapter 2. Verses 5 through 7, it says, At the time there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shemel. His family had been among those who, came with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. The man had, been, had a very beautiful and lovely cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. So the Jews had been exiled or taken, really, from Jerusalem into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Nebuchadnezzar was the guy with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you're wondering, from scriptural history. Um, and, and so they've been held in captivity. So they're living there in captivity. They've been living in this kingdom. And we have this, this young woman who's an orphan. She's been adopted by her cousin. He's been taking care of her. You know, there's really nothing special that's said about her. Her name was Hadassah. That was her Hebrew name. The name Hadassah is the myrtle plant. If you've ever seen henna that they do at weddings in the Middle Eastern India, that's the plant that they use to make that powder. So it was very precious. It was very beautiful. Her name would have been a beautiful name for her to have. And so she's living there this life. We don't know what happened to her parents. But we know that she lived with her cousin. And it says that the king was going to look for a new queen. Now, oftentimes, marriages of this prominence, because he was over the Persian Empire, he was Xerxes. If you study your history, like, did you guys see the movie 300? 300? Xerxes was the guy who went into battle against the Greeks. Like, he was a famous king in history. Usually, those kind of marriages are arranged among other nations. Like, there's this big political thing behind their weddings. But instead, they decided to find a wife from among the Persian Empire. And so what happens is he puts out a decree to round up the virgins. And taking a look at verses 8 and 9, it says, The result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, were brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a menu for her, provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace and moved her and her maids in the best place in the harem. Now, One day Esther went out and she was taken. The scriptures tell us, if you look at the the word in Hebrew and you look at the verb, it's taken against her will. So imagine you send your teenage daughter out and she never comes home. And you come to find that she's been taken to the palace to live among these pagans who do not worship and honor God. And that she is possibly going to be chosen to be the new queen. Now, many people hear that and they think that's great. But here's the deal about being a princess or a queen or a concubine in this time period. It was not happy. Yes, you got to live in fancy clothes and eat food and all this kind of stuff. But you were kept in these buildings. You could not leave. You could not see your family. You had to hang out with all these other women that you liked or didn't like. You may or may not ever have children. Your life was to stay there for the pleasure of the king, kind of like ponies in a stable. That was your life. It was not a glamorous, oh, I get to be a princess, like Sophia the First. It was not Sophia the First. Got that, guys? It was not Sophia the First, okay? Or Tiana. No, it was nothing like that. And it tells us that she was given favor when she got there. And so oftentimes in our lives, we find ourselves removed from our present happy path. We'll be going along happy as can be, and something shifts us from that path. Almost like we're taken against our will to a different place. We lose a job. We lose a loved one. We get a diagnosis of illness. Something happens that shatters that life we had and removes us to some place we may or may not want to be. And my first question for you today is, where have you been taken that perhaps God desires you to be? Where have you been taken 
that perhaps God desires you because Esther, she had a decent life with her cousin. She was, she was following the things that God wanted her to. She was being raised like a good Jewish woman. I'm sure he was planning to find her a good husband. All of these things were happening and she was physically taken and placed someplace else that she never imagined she was going to be. And so often that happens to us in our life. And when we think about the plans and the desires God has for us, when we think about this idea of influence, that oftentimes these things that happen sometimes in God's hands, and I believe this was the will of God, but so oftentimes thinking happened that we can see, no, this was not God's will. But we end up in situations either by our choice or the choice of others or by things that we have no control over, and we're in these other places. And we find ourselves and we stand there and say, God, why do you have me here? Why am I in Watertown? Why am I here? Why are we in these places? And we often miss the sight that God, in the midst of all of this, may have something bigger going on. And again, it says that she was, got favor right away with the head eunuch. If you want to know what a eunuch is, ask your mom at home. Um, he treated her kindly, ordered a special menu for her, which makes me wonder if he knew she was a Jew because the scriptures tell us that she did not tell anyone her faith. She kept it a secret. Or if it was just because when you eat certain foods, it makes your skin glow. And she was ordered all these beauty treatments and all these things were happening. As we go on, let's take a look at verses 12 through 14. So they take her to the palace, they take her to the harem, and it says, before each young woman was going to be taken to the king's bed, because that's ultimately what was going to happen. They spent a whole year preparing them to go spend the night with the king. It was not PG rated. Okay. And during that time, they were given prescribed beauty treatments, six months with oil and myrrh. Six months of rubbing oils into their skin and into their hair so that they literally smelled like these fragrances. I had to put perfume on every day because I don't smell like it. (laughs) Come morning. But they rubbed their skin so that they literally would smell like these all the time. Okay? And then six months with special perfumes and ointments. And then when it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. That evening, she was taken to the king's private rooms, and the next morning, she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There, she would be under the care of Shehagaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. And she would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. Again, a a stable of ponies, essentially. And it's interesting to note that... Verse 17 tells us the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her a queen instead of Vashti. That after all of this, that the favor she was given in this year, that when she came before the king, the king chose her. And it's the thing that you begin to see as we go on the story is that God was positioning Esther to be in the place she could impact the most change. And when we talk about being taken from different places and moved either by God or by the things we do ourselves, oftentimes we end up in circumstances where we fail to see that maybe from here we can impact the most change. 
you know, in our life and our journey, and we've shared this before, like my heart and my call and my feeling is sense to go to missions. And we were going to work in the, among the Muslims and we were living in Muslim countries. We were doing all these things. And I, we were on that target. And Pastor Jared shared about this last week. You're on that target. This is where you think you're going to be. And then God completely redirects you. And you say, God, why are you doing this? And because you, you don't see that maybe from this small town in South, Eastern, Western, Middle Wisconsin. <laughs> I don't know where we are. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I know where we are. It's like right here, right? Okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> he, he is setting you up to impact the most change. To impact the most change, that from your home with your 19 kids, you may be setting up the future that millions will come to faith. That from little Watertown, God's going to start doing things that people are going to go all over and do things that I can't do by myself. That our grand design for one plan, God is positioning us to do bigger and better things that we may never get recognition for that we may never get thanked for, that we may never have a full picture of until we're in glory and we see. Now, as the story goes on, things start happening politically in Persia. And again, I'm highlighting this. I encourage you this week for your reading to read this book. It's, it's really exciting. Read it with your kids. Censor what you need to. It's a good, it's, it's a good book. Um, Chapter 3, verses 8 through 11 tells us, and I'm going to give you a little backstory. There was this man named Haman, and Haman was an official. He was doing all kinds of stuff, and he got into a little tuffle with uh, Esther's cousin Mordecai. Mordecai wouldn't bow to him when he went by all fancy with his horses. And so he was offended by the one guy. One guy doesn't bow. That tells you the kind of person he was. Everybody else is bowing, but because one guy didn't bow, he gets upset. And he uses his influence, and he goes, starting with verse 8, Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There's a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give... 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited to the royal treasury. So he's saying, I'll give you 10,000 large sacks of silver. He's paying the king to let a decree happen for all of the Jews to be killed. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. Like that. He signed the death warrant for thousands and thousands of men, women, and children for being Jews. Do you see what God's doing yet? And as the story goes on, we're going to go into chapter 4. Esther hears word of this. And all the Jews, when they hear the decree, start putting on sackcloth and ashes and going into mourning. In the streets, they're throwing ashes on themselves and going into mourning and crying out to God and asking for deliverance. And when Esther hears about this and she hears her cousin is doing these things, the scripture tells us she sends him clothes 
because she doesn't want him participating. She wants him to just cover it up because, again, she's kept her identity secret, and I'm sure at this moment she's scared to death. They don't know she's a Jew. They don't know that this man is her cousin. But if they find out, her life, too, is in danger. And most people, when they hear a death threat against them, the first thing they're thinking about is, how can I survive? Right? And in chapter 4, starting with verse 10, then Esther told Hattach to go back and relay a message to Mordecai. Because Mordecai contacts her. All the king's officials, and even the people of the provinces, know that anyone who appears before the king, Mordecai contacts her and asks her to go meet with the king and use her influence. Before the king in his inner court, without being invited, is doomed to die unless the king holds on to his gold scepter and extends it. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathach gave Esther's message to Mordecai. So Mordecai contacts Esther, says, Esther, go before the king. And she's like, I can't. I don't have an appointment for 30 days. If I go before the king and he doesn't receive me, I'm dead. So right now, she's dead if they find out she's a Jew. And if she goes and tries this, she may be dead anyway. And she tells her uncle, I can't do this. I can't use the influence. Because she doesn't yet see And so often we don't see how God has positioned us. We get so fixated on our own circumstances. We get fixated on the bills. We get fixated on our problems. We get fixated on our own pain and our own loss and our own personal coffee tragedies. You know when the coffee's gone, or in my case, Diet Coke? These mini, minuscule crises sometimes that we fail to see that in the midst of all of our looking at us, God is asking us to look out at those around us and to use our influence. There are so many days that it's easier for me just to yell at my kids and turn on the TV than it is to be their mom. Let's, let's tell the truth here, right? Go watch TV. Leave me alone. It's easy. Hand him a smartphone. I don't do that. Here, go do this while I do my own thing. It's easy to keep our heads down on our phones and ignore the person next to us at Walmart who's obviously struggling. It's easy for us to get mad at the driver next to us without considering that maybe the reason they're driving like a psycho is that they just got the worst news they've ever heard. It's easy for us to judge. It's easy for us to look at how we're affected by others without seeing how God wants us to affect them. And so Mordecai sends a message back. And he says in verse 13, sent this reply to Esther, don't think for a moment because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Talk about a rebuke. My next question for you today, are you willing to use your influence to change lives even if it costs you greatly? Are you willing if it costs you greatly? We are a culture that loves big heroic stories. We love big glamorous happy endings. If you like happy endings, don't go see the new Avengers movie. Um, 
We love it, which is why when things happen, we're like, how could they do this to us? We're a happy ending culture. We're supposed to be victorious. It's not supposed to end like this. But often the, what we see as a happy ending and what we view as success is not what God views as success. Christ on the cross, that's success for God. That was part of the plan. Give everything so everyone could have everything. That's God. We've talked about this before, how God looks and says that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. That we are called to be sacrificial in our lives, to be willing to pay the price. And often that price is small things. It's not always big, grand things. And I know I'm telling a big, grand story. But it's often those small things, those small choices to sit a moment longer. I had a small choice opportunity on Friday, was it? Friday. My neighbor was calling me that we've been helping out a bit. And um, I missed the first call. And then I w- and she was calling back again pretty quickly. And I was like, oh, I have so much to do today. I can't, don't, can't have time to go help her. And I didn't. I had so much to do. Jared can tell you I had so much to do. But I answered the phone because in that moment, I'm like, no, I need to help her. And I answered the phone, and she needed some information, and I was able to pass the phone on to Jared because it was lawnmower information, and that's not my purview. But we, we skip those opportunities so often to just answer the phone, to just respond in a message, to reach out and connect to somebody, to ask how someone is doing, to be present in their lives, to give up whatever it is we're rushing home to binge watch on Netflix so that we can be an influence in the lives of other people, so that we can care more. But it's going to cost us something. And the story goes on. Esther goes before the king. King doesn't kill her. He sees her, extends his thing. She comes before him, invites him to dinner. A few dinner parties happen, and she reveals the truth, and she tells who she is, that she's a Jew. She tells what's happened, and Haman and his family and all of them are killed, and the Jews are spared. And to this day, the Jews celebrate something called Purim. It's a two-day celebration where they celebrate what God did through Esther and through this. Because she chose to risk her life and to use her influence. And the thing is, it's easy to think that we, like Esther, would use our influence to change lives. It's easy to think in that circumstance that, yes, we would do the same thing. We see stories where, like, I would totally do that. Or we get mad. How do you ever, ever yell at the TV? Why don't you do the right thing? Why was Hitler able to kill so many Jews? Why didn't more people hide them? Why didn't more people save their neighbors? Because in those moments, we don't always do the right thing. Right? We want to say that we would have been like the Franks, or not the people that helped the Franks, or to have been like Corey Ten Boom's family, and we would have hid people in the back of our store. I've stood in that store. I've stood where those Jews hid. We think we would have done that, would have risked our family dying in concentration camps. But the reality is most of us, when faced with even the smallest inconvenience, are unwilling to risk it. Risk that self, that part of us, that needs to give up whatever it is. And we think at big moments that we would do it, that the moments that are honored. But most often, our greatest influence are going to be unseen and unrecognized. Raise your hand if you're potty trained. (laughs) 
Raise your hand if you're body trained. Okay? Now, it's, it's funny. But you're potty trained because someone's unseen and unrecognized efforts got you into the bathroom and out of diapers. And it's a practical Mother's Day analogy because I'm guessing that 98% of you were potty trained by your mother. But these things that we do in our lives that are unseen and unrecognized are often the greatest influence. And the third question I have to ask you today is, are you willing to be an unknown world changer? Are you willing to give it all to God? Are you willing to go daily to God and say, let me be a positive influence in someone's life, even if you're never recognized, even if you don't see the results? We have so many stories in the Christian church history of people that gave a kind word or did one thing for a person that led to nations coming to faith, that led to orphans finding homes, led to dramatic change. And in the scriptures, there's all kinds of women that some of you have probably not heard of. And if we take a look at 2 Timothy, I'm just going to go through a couple of these quick. There are women in the scriptures that we don't know very much about. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul is talking and he says, Okay, I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know the same faith continues strong in you. These two women are mentioned. Paul knew the faith first in the grandmother and then in the mother. He said, I see that same faith in you, Timothy. That these two women influenced Timothy, who was a mighty evangelist and apostle in the scriptures we see. We know the name Timothy. We don't know the name Lois. And we don't know the name Eunice. But without Lois and Eunice, Timothy would not be serving the Lord. And we take a look at Acts 16, verses 11 through 15. There's another story that we don't hear very often, but it's significant. And it says, We boarded a boat to Troas and sailed straight across the island of Semarathus. And the next day we landed in Neapolis. From there we reached Philippi, a major city in the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony, and we stayed several days. On the Sabbath, we went out a little way outside the city to a river bank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. We sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Theatria, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged until we agreed. Raise your hand if you have European heritage. This was the first convert on the continent of Europe. She's the first believer in Europe, was Lydia. Her home birthed the first church in Europe. Think about that. And we know very little about her other than she sold purple, which Lottie would love because it's her favorite color. And that she came to faith... Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. It says, I commend to our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church in Centria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs. She has been faithful to many and especially to me. Phoebe, the word diakonos there means deacon or minister. He's speaking most believed to a pastor, a woman pastor mentioned in scriptures that we know very little about other than that Paul is saying 
that she has been helpful to many, especially to him. And we know almost nothing about her, but she was faithful. And the last one we're going to read about is in Romans 16, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who were in prison with me. They are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. Junia, who was in prison with Paul and was an apostle. She's the only woman apostle recorded in Scripture. We know almost nothing about her other than she suffered in prison, just like other apostles, and that she was an apostle. Unseen. Unseen works that they did. We don't have books written by them. We don't have mighty stories of what they accomplished, but they were faithful to God. They didn't come and need a cup of credit. We joke about getting a cup of credit. I want my cup of credit. (laughs) But they did what they needed to do when they were obedient, even when it wasn't culturally cool. Even when it was outside the norm, they were faithful. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to close with this. Colossians 3.23, and it's a verse that you're going to recognize. It says, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. How many of you have heard that passage? Let's look at verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. That's the context of that passage. We often hear the, that verse and we think, oh yeah, whatever I do, I do it to the Lord, but that verse was given to people who were in slavery. And we complain. We complain in our freedom about having to do things for others. We complain in our freedom about having to take time to influence and care for others. God has so much more for us, church. God has so much more for us. And when we think about influence, we think about the things that we can do, and the things that we do will often, again, be unseen and unrecognized. But they will have powerful impacts in the lives of others. And so today, I want to encourage you, and I want to say thank you for your influence, and I'm speaking that prophetically. Yes, we're saying thank you. We're saying thank you to the women in this church Mothers or not, for what you're doing to serve the kingdom. And as, as you leave today, at the back, we have thank you notes for all of you to take with you. And the reason we picked thank you notes is because so often we miss that opportunity to thank someone who has impacted us. To thank a person who has spoken into our lives. To thank someone who has given so much for us. And so I encourage you to take one of those notes and to do that to write a thank you to someone. And to maybe write a thank you to someone who needs that encouragement because they don't see that you see what they're doing for others. And I want you to keep a blank one in your Bible or wherever on your dresser. And every day you see that, I want you to think about the thank you notes you want people to write about you. (laughs) That if the people you impact for God... Someday gave you a thank you note. What kind of influence do you want to be? Do you want them to say, she came to my home when I was sick and she cared for me. She called me when I needed a friend. She held my hand and she prayed for me. She shared the gospel with me and I'm here because of that. What kind of influencer do you want to be?
because God's calling us to do this big work. And that's a big work made of tiny little pieces. So today I'm not asking you to change the world, but I am. One unseen and unrecognized act at a time. If the worship team can come up. Let's just take a moment to pray. And I'm going to encourage you now to pray and ask God just to really solidify this in your hearts. I know he's been speaking to you about things and situations. And just to take a moment to ask God, what areas of your life do you need to let him have more control of? What things do we need to put before him so that we can be that impactor? Men and women, this is for everyone here. Because God has so much more in store for us, but we have to let him. We have to let him lead in that. So as the worship team plays, let's just take some moments to pray.